You're listening to audio from Risen Life Fellowship. If you'd like to learn more about our church or donate to this ministry, please visit risenlifefellowship.com. How are y'all doing? Good morning. Man, that was a good response. Not expecting that. That was excellent. Good morning. How are you guys? Everybody's like sitting in different spots today too. I like that. Keep me, keep me on my toes. Um, well, I hope you're doing well. Uh, can you guys hear me okay? Am I coming through the? <laughs> am I coming through? I don't hear myself. Sorry. Okay. All right. Well, um, I'm glad to be here this morning. Are you, are you glad to be here this morning? Me too. Um, all right. Well. Uh, I trust that you had a wonderful weekend last weekend celebrating Easter uh, with us or maybe back with your family. Um, I know it was a wonderful weekend for me. Uh, and you know, the thing about Easter, though, is that it's, it's not just a day that we look back on some historical event that's not really relevant uh, to us today. Uh, rather, you know, we celebrate Easter uh, what we celebrate on Easter, the, the resurrection of Christ, uh, it's just as relevant this morning as it was last week, right? And, and it's just as relevant uh, last week as it was 2,000 years ago when it happened, right? Um, you know, the fact that we worship a living Savior uh, who conquered death, He conquered death, is, is the thing that sets us apart from, from, from everyone else, from every other religion it's what sets us apart as christians and it is the thing that from which we draw our our joy and our strength and our hope and it's a sure hope isn't it it's a sure hope that we have in christ if you have the holy spirit and you you know that like it it just it resonates in you like i know i know this is true like uh, god has testified to me in me that it is true and so it's not like the celebration is over and we just do the easter thing and then we kind of move on to other things, uh, but rather uh, it's a celebration every single day as, as, as a Christian, and it should, it should affect um, every aspect of our lives, and it ought to be obvious in your life that you believe that a man rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. Is that, that ought to be ob- obvious in your life. Is that fair? That ought to be obvious in our lives this morning. Uh, I'm going to ask you to turn to John 8 this morning. We're going to get back in John. And we'll hope to finish the chapter today, looking at the last 12 verses. <clears throat> so John chapter 8. Uh, last time in John, this was a couple of weeks ago, um, we saw Jesus make an astounding claim in, in verse 32. He says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And we talked about what, what it means uh, to have true freedom in Christ. And also, we talked about the deceitfulness of sin that, that keeps us from having true freedom. And even as a Christian, it robs us of, of, of true freedom at times, uh, the deceitfulness of sin. Now, this week, Jesus is he's in the same exact conversation with the same people, the Pharisees, and he makes an even more astounding claim uh, this time. In fact, this is this is the most shocking statement of the ministry of Jesus. And I think that's made very clear by the way that the Pharisees react to him. This is the most shocking statement that Jesus makes in all of the Gospels. Y'all excited for it? Me too. Me too. Yeah, it, this is this is the most shocking thing of all the shocking things. And Jesus said some shocking things, some in your face things. But this, there's nothing more shocking than what he says here. Um Remember in, in this conversation, uh, the Pharisees that Jesus interacts with, they're, they're getting more and more angry at him. Okay, they, they are about to bubble over. They've, they've resorted to, to calling him names. Last week they, they, we saw they called him an illegitimate child. Right? They said, uh, they said we, we weren't born of, of fornication, indicating, you know, Jesus, you're an illegitimate child. Um, so they, they've resorted to name calling. They're getting uh, very, very angry. They've gotten very defensive. As Jesus speaks more and more truth to them, their hatred 
for Jesus is growing and growing and growing. And we're going to see it boil right over at the end of this chapter. And so we left off in verses 42 through 47, where Jesus has, has told these guys that they are of the devil. Again, old, good old seeker sensitive Jesus. He says, you are of your father, the devil. That's what he says to the Pharisees. He says, Satan is a deceiver and he's a liar. And you've fallen for every one of his tricks as evidenced by your rejection of, of Jesus. And he says that uh, he says that this has happened because because Satan, he, he is your real father. You claim to worship God, but but actually you you worship Satan with your life. And that's where this morning we're going to pick up. But right in the midst of that tension uh, starts verse 48. And so I'm going to ask you to stand with me one more time here. And we're going to read verses 48 through 59. Then Jesus answered and said to him, then the Jews answered and said to him, do we not rightly say, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Then the Jews said to him, now we now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets and you say, if anyone keeps my word, He shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead? And the prophets are dead? Who do you you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he was glad, and he saw it, and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for this church family. I'm so thankful that you've brought us here. Each individual, Lord, is here uh, because you've ordained that they're here this morning. And we're so thankful that they're here this morning, God. Lord, I ask that during this time you would remove all distractions. That you would be glorified. That your word would be proclaimed and not my words. That you would speak through me. Move me out of the way, Lord. Speak to your people. If there's one who needs to be saved this morning, who needs to come through repentance and faith, Lord, let it be today. Father, please. And God, we ask that you would just get the glory with this time. You get your glory at this time. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, you can have a seat. So Jesus actually makes two pretty shocking statements. In this, but hopefully you you probably caught the most shocking, at least in my opinion. That's my opinion, not God's word, really. But um, okay, so again, Jesus is having this conversation with these religious leaders of Israel at the temple, likely in front of a pretty big crowd after the Feast of Tabernacles. There's still a lot of uh, people in town here. Um, He's already made some very bold claims in this dialogue. He says, I am the the light of the world. That's how it kind of opened this conversation with them. He said, if you abide in my word, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And so the tensions are escalating dramatically and the Pharisees hearts are getting harder and harder and harder. And you can kind of see it in the text is how they're hardening and hardening and hardening themselves and their insults are getting more and more severe. In verse 48, they say, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? You have a demon. It's kind of funny that, that Jesus has just truthfully stated that these men follow Satan because uh, they've, rejected, uh, they've rejected Jesus, who is clearly sent from God. And they would even say 
he sent from God. And they've rejected him, uh, who, who God sent, uh, and they claim to serve this God. And Jesus says, your father is Satan. And the Pharisees reply now is basically in a much more sophisticated, you know, pharisaical way. Uh, their reply simply, essentially is, I know you are, but what am I? Right? I mean, I, I mean, you guys are, are of your father, the devil. But you have a demon. Yeah, I know you are, but what am I? I mean, they've resorted to second grade jokes now. Second grade comebacks. Um, not super clever, although, they, although they, they try to make it sound a little more uh, sophisticated than that. They don't know what to say at this point, and, and they're just grasping for the worst insults they can find, um, even though no one could give an answer to Jesus' question in verse 36, or 46. He says, which of you convicts me of sin? We talked about that last time. And they admit by their silence that they find no sin in him. They can't convict him of sin. And now here they are saying, you have a demon, Jesus. You must have a demon. We see no sin in your life, but you have a demon. And as the dialogue continues here back and forth, eventually it leads up to this major claim in verse 58. And and we're going to kind of work backwards, actually, in this text uh, today and start with the claim. Um, So the claim, that's your first point if you're taking notes this morning. They're, They're talking about Abraham, and we'll get into more of the specifics about what they're talking about, but eventually Jesus says that Abraham rejoiced to see his day, to see Jesus' day, which leads them to ask, how have you ever seen Abraham? You're not even 50 years old, they say. And Jesus' reply is this, most assuredly, I say to you, now, that's an important phrase. It, it, it can, it, yours may say, truly, truly. In other words, listen up. Because this is truth. This is absolute truth that you have to hear. And then he says, before Abraham was, I am. What a weird thing to say. That's a strange thing to say. Before Abraham was, I am. And I, I mean, has Jesus forgotten his grammar? Is Jesus not trained in the grammatical ways? Because as a, as a grammar freak, this would annoy me, right? Before, what are you talking about, Jesus? Before Abraham was, I am. That makes no sense. Now, um, as you can see by the graphic that, that is sometimes behind me, um, the, this is the title of our entire study through John. I am. right? Because this is a, a very powerful and meaningful statement that Jesus makes. Uh, we've talked about the seven I am statements that Jesus makes throughout this book. And we've covered two so far. We've got five left. Um, but this is maybe the most powerful of them all. And it's not typically counted in the seven. Which is weird to me. I, I don't know why you wouldn't count this. But typically in that list of seven, they, they don't usually count uh, this one. It's, it's a bonus I am statement at no extra charge. And, and I would say that it is the most majestic, the most powerful, and the most life-changing of all of them. And this, this one is the clearest statement in the New Testament of Jesus claiming to be God. And it is very, very clear. Now, all of the other statements uh, begin with the phrase, I am, which uh, in the Greek is ego eimi. So ego eimi, you don't really have to write that down because you don't speak Greek. Um, but but it's the phrase I am translated I am. Um, it's ego me in the Greek. But then usually something else is added. So I am the, the bread of life. Right? I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. We're going to see these these seven statements as we continue through John. They all represent some aspect of Jesus being of God's very nature. Like they're, they're all deity claims. But this one, he, he just leaves it absolute. He just leaves it at, I am. I am. And this really takes us back and, and took these religious leaders back. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But it, it took them back um, to Exodus chapter 3. And so I, I want you to turn over to Exodus chapter 3, if you have your Bibles. Love that sound of the, the, the pages flipping. Drew, where's your pages, man? 
extra pages. <laughs> it's the most beautiful sound to me. There's not, enough, there's not enough of that sound going on in churches today. That's the problem. That's the problem. There's not enough sounds of the pages of the Bible flipping so that we can study the Word of God and not some pastor's word. Exodus chapter 3. And we've alluded to this before, uh, both of the times we've talked about two of the I am statements that we've uh, been through, but I want to look at it a little more closely this morning. In Exodus 3, Moses is, is tending some sheep, right? He's minding his own business, and all of a sudden a bush catches on fire, but it's not consumed. Obviously, it catches uh, Moses' Moses's eye, and in verse 3, Moses says, I think this is funny how it's written. I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush does not burn. Like it's, it just sounds like robotic to me. Like I will now. It's like he catches it in his peripheral. I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why is that bush not consumed though it is burning? I think it probably wasn't really like that. It, was, it probably was more like, oh my goodness, this burning bush. And that, how does this happen? And why in the world is it not consumed? This is miraculous. I will now turn aside. And, <laughs> I mean, and, and the bush, you know, more than that, it starts speaking to him. It starts speaking to him. And the bush says, take your sandals off your feet, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father. He goes on, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac. And it says that Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. That's a pretty common testimony in Scripture. And God goes on to say that he has seen the oppression of his people in Egypt, and he is coming to deliver them. And he wants Moses to be the one who leads them out of Egypt. And Moses says in verse 13, when I come to them, what shall I say is your name? Let's say they they ask me what your name is. What, What do I tell them? And God says in verse 14, I am who I am. Thus, you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. He goes on in verse 15, this is my name forever. And this is my memorial to all generations And of course, you guys know the rest of the story. But the point is that God calls himself, I am. Translated with that same phrase, ego emi, in the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which is the Bible that they would have had in the first century. That's what they would have had. The Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It's the Bible that Jesus read out of. And it's the same phrasing. I am has sent you. And this is very similar and and connected to the name for God, Yahweh. Yahweh. And here Jesus is in John 8 saying, before Abraham was, I am. Same Greek phrase, translated I am, and translated Yahweh. Same Greek phrase in the Greek Septuagint. Amazing statement. We understand what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that He is Yahweh. He is the one true creator God. He is the God who made a covenant with Abraham. He is the God who made a covenant with His people Israel. He is the very God who revealed Himself to Abraham and to Moses in the the burning bush. the statements don't get any bigger than this. This is the most shocking thing on the planet that Jesus could have possibly said. So what are the implications of this statement? Well, first of all, Jesus never had a beginning and will never end. He is eternally existent. Before Abraham was, I am. He is who defines all other being. 
eternally existent, self-existent. He just is. Jesus just is. Before there was any sort of matter. Even before there was empty space. I, I, I cannot even fathom this with my brain. Before there was even voidness. He is. He was there. Before Abraham was, I am. He could have said before Abraham was, I was. But he was making a clear statement that he is God. He is eternally existent, self-existent. He defines all other existence. He is utterly independent. We have no concept of what that must be like. We're dependent on so many things. So many things have to go right just for us to breathe. Understand? We are utterly dependent. He is utterly independent. And by His Word, He upholds all other things. It also means that He is utterly holy. Remember Moses hiding his face? He is utterly set apart from us. He is the God from whom Moses hid his face in fear and who later, when he would visit God on the mountaintop, remember his face would be glowing. After he spent time with God, he would have to cover his face just so he could come back down and talk to the people. He is the God who, whom Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6 and he said, Woe is me! I am dead. This God is so holy. And he was immediately hit with what? Remember what he said? I'm a man of unclean lips. Prophet of God saying that. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. I'm dead. Same God. Jesus. Same, very, very same nature. This God is holy. He is holy. And He sets all standard of holiness. He sets the standard for us. That's where we get our morality, right? He sets that. We didn't just all get together and decide that. Jesus set that. The I am has set morality. He sets the standards of holiness. He sets what truth is. He sets the laws of science. He sets how this, this world functions. He sets all wisdom. He defines it. He is the one that brings beauty to anything. He does whatever He wants. You believe that? God, Jesus does whatever he wants. And whatever he does is right. Whatever it is. And he is constant. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we think all powerful, perfectly holy, so set apart, eternally existent, it's not only that, though. He tells Moses he will be with him. He will be with his people. He is the God who is with his people. He says he will deliver his people. He says, I've seen your oppression and I will deliver you. He's the God who delivers, the God who saves the Passover in Egypt, which Moses is about to take his people through, that was the first time that God delivered his people in a corporate way. It was the first time that God delivered his people with the blood of the lamb, by the way. Remember that? The blood of the lamb on the doorpost, and the angel of death passed over those houses. The first time that God Delivered his people in a corporate way. In fact, God says that in, in Exodus chapter 6. 
verses 2 and 3, he says to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name Yahweh, Lord, I was not known to them. That's a strange thing to say. In other words, the patriarchs knew God by His power, by His holiness, by His set-apartness, but in His name, I am Yahweh. The people will know Him by His intimacy, by His deliverance, by His saving them. He is a saving God. Amen? He is a saving God. And interesting that this is the name that Jesus, Jesus, which means He will save His people from His sins, from their sins. This is the name that Jesus claims for Himself. I am. He's holy, eternal, self-existent, the definer of everything else, all else. He is creator, but He's also intimate with us. Don't ask me why. I don't know why. And he will also save his people. All of this and so much more. Jesus is claiming in his statement before Abraham was. I am. And the Jews understood what he meant. Probably even greater than we as 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 Gentiles with really our our limited understanding of Judaism, uh, probably even greater than we can understand it. And that's where I want to get to the next point, the corroboration. We've seen the claim. Now let's look at the corroboration. There are those who would say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. He didn't say that. His followers made that up. As I hope you have seen over and over in the study already, and certainly this morning, this claim uh, really bears no weight. It's a ridiculous claim. A ridiculous, empty claim from individuals who would love for Jesus not to be God. That'd be great. Because if He's not God and He's just some teacher, then maybe everything He said isn't true. Maybe I'm not completely accountable to Him. Sure, I mean, that'd be great for them if Jesus never claimed to be God. But if you're going to make that claim... You're going to have a hard time convincing the Jews. You're going to have a hard time convincing the Jews. In verse 59, after Jesus makes this claim, their anger finally boils over. And they pick up stones to stone him. But it says that Jesus hid himself. I don't know what happened here. It certainly sounds like a miraculous escape. Uh, Perhaps it wasn't miraculous. I don't know. That's not really the point. Jesus escapes, though. The point is that their actions here corroborate, first of all, the depth of his claim. He was claiming to be God. They want to stone him because if he is lying, and in their minds, that's the only conclusion. He has to be lying. And if he is lying, then he's a blasphemer. He's claiming to be God when he's not. Make no mistake, the Jews thought this man claimed to be God. The first century Jewish elite, they thought Jesus claimed to be God. But in this passage, uh, we also see the veracity of Jesus' statement corroborated as we, as we kind of work backwards here. And it's first corroborated by God the Father, whom the Pharisees claimed to worship. <clears throat> this is not the first time you've seen this, um, but, but in verse 49, after they say he has a demon and is, is a Samaritan, Which, by the way, you see how much they hate Samaritans, right? They hate Samaritans. And we talked a little bit about that when we talked about the the Samaritan woman earlier in John chapter 4. But Jesus says calmly, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father. He goes on in the next, next verse, that he does not seek his own glory, but there is one who does seek it, and he judges. This, of course, is God the Father that he's talking about. He makes it even more clear in verse 54. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. 
But here Jesus says, I don't seek my own glory. But God the Father seeks my glory. And he will be the judge of you. And we see this picture corroborated in the Old Testament. Passages like Psalm uh, 110, verse 1. It says this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This is almost a thousand years before Jesus, by the way. Um, this is known by the Jewish people as a messianic text. Because they thought this was talking about the coming Messiah. And it's God saying to his servant these words, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, I'm going to get your glory. I am going to get your glory. I am going to fight for you. Passages like Isaiah 52 verse 13. This, it says this. Behold my servant. Another messianic title. My servant. Behold my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. We see God fighting for the glory of his servant. There's Daniel chapter 7 where the ancient of days, God himself, he hands over a kingdom to the son of man. That's what Jesus called himself, right? The son of man. He hands over this kingdom and he says, this shall be an everlasting kingdom in which he shall rule. Many, many other Old Testament passages. Where there's this picture of, of God the Father exalting the coming Messiah. Exalting his servant. Who would come to Israel. Whom the Jews were awaiting in the first century. And I would think that, that as Jesus says this. That many bells would be going off in the Pharisees heads. Because um, they've seen things from Jesus that they cannot explain. Remember when, when Nicodemus, who, who's, who's called the teacher in Israel, the teacher in Israel, he comes to Jesus by night, John chapter 3, and he says to him, Rabbi, we know that you are from God. We, the Pharisees, we know that you're from God because you could not do the things that you do if you were not from God. They admit he's from God. They saw the signs of Jesus um, and, and here's the thing, the signs showed that God the Father corroborated everything that Jesus said. And here's the type of things that Jesus would say. Mark chapter 2, to the paralyzed man lowered from the roof. You remember his friends, that they wanted him to be healed. And there was too big of a crowd, so they, they said, well, let's get him on the roof and we can get him in. They lowered him through the roof down to Jesus. He comes down and Jesus says, what does he say to him first? You remember? He says, your sins are forgiven. I don't know if he was looking for that, but that's what he says. He says, your sins are forgiven. And it says that the religious leaders, they wanted to kill him right there. Because they thought to themselves, and Jesus knew their thoughts, it says. They thought to themselves, only God can forgive sins. How does this man say that? He's a blasphemer. And then Jesus says, well, to prove that I have power to forgive sins, which only God has, get up and walk. And he takes his mat, rolls it up, and he walks away. Unbelievable. Jesus had the guts to do things like, like try a healing on the Sabbath. And that's what they're all mad about in chapter 8, by the way. They're still mad about chapter 5. When Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath. He said, get up and walk. And they were so mad that he did this on the Sabbath. But Jesus had the guts to try a stunt like this on the Sabbath. Because he knew that God would corroborate the healing. 
He knew that God would bring the healing because he knew that he was the I am. Jesus would do and say things that could only be explained if he were God himself. And then God would back him up. And he's going to say another one here that we'll save for the end. God corroborated every word that Jesus said. Even his claim here to be the great I am. <clears throat> he corroborated with miracles, with prophecy, with his baptism. Remember, the dove came down and said, this is my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Serve him. At his transfiguration, same thing happened. He corroborated him by sending John the Baptist right before whom he predicted would come in the Old Testament. And ultimately, he corroborated him with his resurrection from the dead. That was the ultimate corroboration for sure that every word that Jesus said is true. And think about all that he said. My goodness. There's another corroborator, if that's a word, corroborator mentioned here, um, Abraham. They ask, they ask essentially, who do you think you are? Do you think you're greater than our father Abraham or the prophets who all died and you're claiming to have some power over death? Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and he was glad. You should be glad too. Your father Abraham certainly was. He tells them that Abraham could see his day. And he rejoiced. And so why? Why are you trying to kill me? Look with me at Hebrews chapter 11. This is the hall of faith as it's sometimes known. And it, it discusses the Old Testament saints who died before they saw the ultimate fulfillment. Of the promise in Jesus. They didn't see it with their own eyes. They died prior to Christ coming. But they were promised. Of this kingdom coming. And in verse, th verse 13. It says in regards to Abraham. And to Sarah. That these all died in faith. Not having received the promises. That they had not received the ultimate promise. But having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. I love that. I, I love that. that. They could not see the ultimate fulfillment, but they trusted that what God said was true. They trusted in God's promise. The next verse says something like, yeah, if they if they'd seen the, the land that they came from, they wouldn't have even wanted to go back. Because they knew they had this kingdom coming. It was a sure hope for them. Abraham gave up his homeland, remember? He confessed that he was just a stranger on this earth and he followed God. I think we look over we read over that Genesis twelve so many times we glance over it. A breeze over it, whatever, and we don't think about it. Abraham left everything. Because God said, come and follow me, and I'm not going to tell you where I'm going. I'm not going to tell you where we're going, but you need to follow me. And, and Abraham left everything. Gave up his homeland. Became a stranger, a nomad. Because God promised him this, that, that through his seed, he would bless all nations. That was God's promise to Abraham. Now, I don't know how much depth Abraham knew about Christ. The Bible doesn't really tell us. But he knew that God was going to bless all nations from his descendants. And he rejoiced in that. And he followed that promise with everything that he had. And Jesus here says, I am the one that he was rejoicing over. 
I am the reason he stayed strong in his faith toward God. I am the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Because I was there. And I've come now to fulfill that duty of blessing all nations through his sacrifice, through his death, through his sacrifice for sin. And if we were to look through Hebrews 11 and take each individual mention there, or we were to consider the, the, the prophets, there's a scarlet thread that weaves all of them together, all corroborating and all looking forward to this one fulfillment. And his name is Jesus. They all look forward to this day. And it has now come here in chapter 8. And the Jewish people are missing it. They're missing it. We've seen the claim. We've seen the corroboration. Now let's look at the consequences. And we'll close with that one. And this statement from Jesus before Abraham was... I am is anything but inconsequential. In fact, that statement is the most consequential statement that could be made. Because what we believe about that statement will determine where we will spend eternity. It absolutely will. You know, death is something that none of us can avoid. No matter how influential we might be, no matter how much money we've got, no matter what we do, we cannot avoid death. I remember um, it was on my birthday. That's maybe one reason I remember it so well. But a year ago on my birthday, Kobe Bryant died. Um, and uh, I, I, was just, I was just shocked by it. And I think the whole world was. Because this is a man who's like, in his prime, right? And he's an NBA basketball player and, and people, you know, one of the greatest. And the world has kind of made him like a god. You know, and the world, the world just does that, right? With certain people, um, they make certain people out to be immortal, right? Uh, you know, and we, we fall into this a little bit, don't we? That's part of the reason why I was so shocked. Like, oh my goodness, not him. You know, because we, kind of, we kind of, a little bit at least, buy into it, even though we know it's not true. The world paints these people out to be immortals. And when he died, I, I was just like, oh, my goodness. You know, I cannot believe that. Um, but, you know, so far, death has had an absolutely perfect record. We all will face death unless Jesus gets us before that. And yet Jesus here in, in verse 51 has the audacity to say, most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. He shall never see death. And we would be tempted to think, what a ridiculous, dumb statement. If he hadn't said he was God. And he had power over death. And if he hadn't like literally raised someone from the dead. Lazarus. If he hadn't shown his power over demons. Remember when he just cast that legion into those pigs? Remember like it was nothing. And they were just scared to death of him. Like, oh, Jesus, are you going to torture us before the time? He's getting the pigs. Right? I mean, it wasn't even a thing for him. Proved his power over darkness. And then he was corroborated over and over and over again by God the Father. So since that is who is saying this, it can only be one thing, and that is absolute truth. If anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. And we know that Jesus, of course, is not talking about physical death. Okay, he's not. Just as in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus being born again. And he says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, how am I going to do that? How am I getting back in my mother's womb? 
Jesus said, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about physical rebirth. He's talking about spiritual rebirth. And here he's not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. He's talking about this second death. Where all who have rejected Christ's sacrifice will be cast away from him forever in the lake of fire. You know, the thing that scares each of us about death, I think, is the, just the finality of it and the fear of the unknown. Like what, what, is, what does that mean for me if I'm dead? What does that mean for me? All we know is life. We don't know death. What is this? It's unknown. What's next? And in Christ, the fear of death is abolished. Amen? The fear of death is abolished because He is, I am. And because everything He said is true, we don't have to worry about what happens at death. Not as believers. See, death is simply a passageway to real life. The most real life we've ever experienced. That'll be in heaven. It's simply just, just, just a little hallway to eternity with, with our Savior. Just a passageway. We have supreme confidence that what awaits us after death is paradise with our Savior. Because that's what he has said. And he is God. It's of utmost importance that Jesus is the I am. Because if not, we really don't have hope. It means he is not one who has power over death. It means he's not one who has power over Satan. And most significantly... Most significantly, it is he does not have power over sin. If he is not, I am. First Corinthians 15. We looked at part of that last week. We're going to look at a later part of that this week. Verses 54 through 57. It says that when our corruptible bodies are changed to incorruptible bodies. As believers. So when we're, when we're given a body like the resurrected Christ body, we shall all be changed. And we shall be like Him. When we're given that body, it says that death is swallowed up in victory. He goes on to say, Oh death, where is your sting? Oh death, where is your victory? He goes on. To say the sting of death is, what's that word? Sin. And the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, it is sin that is the sting of death. Anybody afraid of bees? Sort of a little bit when they come around. I mean, maybe like I'm just up at night thinking about bees. But, you know, like if a bee comes around, are you not going to be like, oh, you know. Like, don't sting me. And if you're allergic to bees, you're probably very afraid of bees. But why are you afraid of bees? The stinger, right? The sting. The sting. Well, death is just like a bee with no stinger. It's just a harmless little creature then. It's no big deal. The sting of death is sin. If we die in our sins, we have every reason to fear death. There is no good news. That is the consequence of rejecting the I am. But in Jesus, through his sacrifice on the cross, because as the I am, he is the God who delivers us from our sins. Through His sacrifice for us, His blood that was shed through Him, we can be forgiven and death has lost 
its sting. It's gone. A death's just a, a little harmless guy now. And we, st- we still get scared about, oh, how's it going to happen? Like, what's it going to be like? I get that. I'm not saying that's just abolished for the Christian. It's not. But the real sting of death is abolished for the Christian. We shall never see death because Jesus is, I am. If sin is gone, the fear of death is gone. Death will simply be the one who delivers us into the loving arms of God the Father. That's it. That's comforting. If you have a a loved one who's sick, I think, who knows Jesus. That's comforting if you are sick or, or something happens, you know. It could happen to any of us, right? At any time. Who knows? Life is so fragile. It's comforting to know that. I don't have to worry about that thing everybody else is worried about. I do not have to worry about death anymore. In Jesus. That's why the martyrs can go singing to the stake. Or they're going to be burned alive. Just a, just a little passageway. It's going to be painful for some. But the sting is gone. The sting is gone. Because he is, I am. And you know, that is more than enough for us, is it not? Like, that's more than we deserve by a long shot. But since he is, I am, he is also. That intimate God who has relationship with his people. And as his followers, he also promises that. This same holy creator, all powerful God is all loving. He's ever near to us. He's ever near to us. He's with us through the storms of life. He is the God who calms the storms of life. He's sometimes the God who brings the storm and brings us right through it. He is the God who splits the Red Sea like it's no big deal. He is the God who has power over legion. Who are you? He's the God who heals the sick with a word. He's the God who raises the dead. And He wants to be near to you and to me. Even the nasty part. And if you're honest with yourself, you've got some nasty parts. And he wants to be near to you. He sees you and he knows you. The worst of you. And he bids you to come to him today. Be closer. Be closer to me. You can be closer. It blows my mind. That this holy Holy, holy God is the same God who gave his life for me. The consequences for the believer of Jesus being I am are life and joy and peace and help through this life. It's guidance, it's direction, it's purpose, it's healing, it's comfort. And ultimately, it's eternal life. We shall never see death. I hope that comforts you today. Whatever you're going through, whatever you're struggling with, I don't know, but he does. This God seeks to know you. He seeks to be right there next to you through this storm. If you're in a storm. Jesus came to seek And to save the lost. And for the unbeliever, the consequences of this statement are equally impactful, but but totally opposite. If Jesus is who he says he is, he doesn't really give you many options with with, with these kinds of bold claims. Like it's either he's a lunatic, he's a liar, he's God. That's it. He's not just a great guy, he's a terrible guy, in fact. If he's a liar. So you've got to do something with him. And if you choose to stay in your sin. 
rejecting his sacrifice. For you, there is no hope. There is no true life. There's only only the little temporary happinesses you can get in this life, which can be significant at times, and then they're gone. Just temporary, lasts for a moment, and then kind of dies out, more emptiness. There is no purpose, no direction. There's pain, and there's ultimately death. Eternal separation from the love of God who gave himself for you. And you don't want anything to do with that. He gave himself for you that you might be saved. And so this morning I beg you to come to him. And I'm going to ask the band to come on up as we uh, move into a time of closing. I beg you to come to him. And you come by belief in Christ which is repentance of sin and complete trust in Him as Savior. Repentance of sin and complete trust in Him. It's like Abraham. God said, leave your country and follow me. He didn't tell him where he was going. I'm sure Abraham doubted a little bit. Surely, he's human. He's like, I don't know about this. But I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust God. And it says it was counted to him as righteousness. His faith was counted as righteousness. His sins were forgiven. Ultimately, they were paid for by Christ's blood. They had to be paid for. or Forgiveness is not possible. Ultimately, they were paid for by Christ's blood. His sins were forgiven through that kind of faith that says, I'm going to go. I'm going to follow you and nothing else will do. That is salvation, repentance and trust in the Savior. So come this morning if you need to come. Come this morning, repent of your sin that has nailed Jesus to the cross. And confess that you want to follow Christ with your life. And then do it. If anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Christians, I, I pray this has been an encouragement to you of who exactly is this Jesus that you serve. And I pray that it drives you to know him more intimately. Don't settle. Don't settle for some shallow faith. I pray that it drives you to know Him and know Him more and more and more. How incredible that we can. How incredible that we can. The I am is everything that you need this morning. And He knows more, he knows more about what you need than you do. And He is everything that you need as set apart as he is from us he bids us to draw near to him and he will draw near to us that's his promise for you this morning Christian that's his promise for you non-Christian just come through repentance and faith and you too can be near to God what a privilege it is as we close, I want you to consider these things. If you need to come, then come. Right now, bow your head in prayer. Bow your head in prayer if you need to come. And you tell him, I need to come and I'm coming. And I'm coming because I'm so sorry for my sin that has nailed Jesus to the cross. So thankful that he has paid for it. I ask you to save me. I want to give my everything to you. That is salvation. Nothing less than that. So will you come this morning? Maybe this, at, during this time, you just want to praise Him. We sing this song of invitation. Maybe you just want to praise Him. Man, He is good. Unbelievably good. With what we've learned about Him this morning. 
And the way that he still says, come, come on, you can be close. You can be close. We don't have to be like Moses who hid his face. Because Jesus has paid for our sin. It is sin that makes us hide our face from God. And Jesus has done away with all of that for the believer. Come to him this morning. Come back to him this morning if you need to come. Whatever you need to do, you do it. I'll give you a few moments here and then uh, and Drew's going to lead us in a song.